Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. I am very pleased to introduce Josh Blackman, who's constitutional law professor at the South Texas College of Law, Houston. So we're fellow Texans, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and president of the Harlan Institute. He's also a uh, leading voice at Reason Magazine, fantastic magazine, Reason.com, at the Volokh Conspiracy, and he's been writing a ton about the purloined Supreme Court letter. I, 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 you know, Josh, I just like saying purloined. I'm going to call it the purloined sure, draft. I love that word, purloined. Good word. Yeah. The case of the purloined draft. I feel like Ellery Queen. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, Josh, I mean, very much unprecedented. Obviously, we're in uncharted waters on several levels. First off, reversing Roe is uncharted waters. You know, having a draft opinion leak in this manner, I think, is completely unprecedented. There was a leak in 79 of a finished opinion that leaked a couple of days before ahead of its release. But I mean, this is really, even apart from what we're talking about, that itself is a an earthquake in, in the legal world, right? It's huge. Um, in the modern era, there has been no example of an entire draft opinion leaking. Look, we've gotten leaks after cases have been decided. There've been some minor leaks before cases have been decided, but not an entire 90 page draft decision. Right. This means someone literally took the opinion and thought, huh, let me give this political. That's a good idea. We have no precedent. That's really stunning. Ed. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And uh, and there's going to be consequences from that. Obviously, there's going to be some, uh, you know, uh, credibility issues for the Supreme Court going forward because of this uh, leak. There's going to, you know, mole hunts are never good for the organizations that endure them. And I think the Supreme Court's going to have a, a pretty rough few weeks ahead of itself. Well, not a few weeks, might be a few months. And I think there's actually a really tough question here. Um, the Supreme Court's not set up for this sort of investigation, right? Right. Let's say forensic work needs to be done. Maybe it was a hack of a system. They're not equipped for this. Do they bring in the FBI? Well, there's a separation of powers issue, right? Do we really want the Biden Justice Department poking around the U.S. Supreme Court? So I think the chief justice is in a really terrible bind. I don't see how they actually do a competent investigation with all the cyber forensic work needs to be done in-house. I think they have to look outside, but if they look outside, they are risking an intrusion upon their deliberations even more. I mean, we saw what happened with DOJ in the past. This is not always a good thing. No, I, I agree with you. Um, that will be very interesting going forward, but let's talk about the draft opinion itself. First off, Let's remind people that it's this is the Yogi Berra, you know, exhortation, right? It ain't over till it's over. It's not. It's, <laughs> it's not. It's a draft opinion. Maybe just in a thumbnail here, we can go over the fact that this is a opinions of the Supreme Court are a collaborative process. It includes having to review the dissents, getting an opportunity to go back and and uh, make edits on the majority opinion based on the dissents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, this is a pretty solid essay written by Alito and since confirmed by the Supreme Court as being authentic, but it's only part of a collaborative process here. So we're not really sure where this is going to end up. What we saw is a first draft, which means this is what Alito produced internally that he circulated to his colleagues. There's no evidence that anyone else has given revisions. So maybe Justice Kavanaugh wants to change this and Justice Thomas wants to change that. Um, there's no dissent that is the majority will respond to 
Kagan or Sotomayor or Breyer in dissent. But what it is is really a work of art. Um, it's it looks like to be 98 pages, but it was actually about 60 something pages. A lot of appendixes afterwards. Alito wrote an opinion that anyone can understand. Anyone listening to your show right now could read this. Lawyer or not, I don't care, and get what he's trying to say. It makes two basic points. First, there's nothing in text or history that supports the right to abortion. It was just made up. And the other side doesn't really argue otherwise. They, they try, but there's no real argument. It was made up. The second point is that this precedent is not worth retaining. That has created so many difficulties to apply, so much controversy that the courts are better getting out of this. And let me make this point differently. The evidence of this leak proves the court has no business in abortion, right? The fact that someone was willing to risk destroying the Supreme Court to try and do something, whatever it is, proves the court should get the hell out of this. Okay, say hell on your show. I'm sorry. You can. I'm sorry. I, I was on the reading <laughs> podcast yesterday dropping F-bombs. I have to know where I am, right? Um, you can do that. You can actually do that here too, Josh. We're not on the air. So it's podcast versus the liberal, you know, the libertarian podcast. So someone's willing to destroy the court to send it to hell. I think it's almost like a flight 93 moment, right? That we're going down. Let's just take everything and burn it with us. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's frankly stunning that someone thought this would be a very good idea. You know, and I made that very point on Monday night, right? Which is, and I made it as sort of an aside, is that abortion has distorted the federal judiciary so much that this is really evidence of why it needs to get out of this is because yes. it's locked itself into a no-win situation and, and maybe just granting the, the, the best intentions to the framers of Roe v. Wade that somehow they could force a national settlement by judicial fiat on everybody. But that experiment has proven to be an incredible failure, an absolutely incredible failure. And abortion has ever since distorted American politics. And it's time to get it back to where it belongs, which is, you know, in, in uh, you know, legislative policy. And, and I think that as much anger and, and vitriol as they're going to take in the short run, the fact that they're going to dispense with this and it's going to go back to the legislatures probably in the long run is going to benefit the Supreme Court. And and really, honestly, the whole process, not just the court itself, but the nominating process to the federal judiciary, the, the confirmation process to the federal mm -hmm. judiciary with this off the table, everything becomes a lot less heated and a lot more focused on actual judicial, you know, traditional judicial um, processes. I think that's exactly right. Um, the court has been in this sort of storm for five decades. And, and even Justice Ginsburg recognizes, she wrote that Roe is a mistake, right? She supports abortion till right. her dying day, as it were. But she recognized that by the court injecting itself, they created backlash. The evangelical movement that exists today did not exist 50 years ago. It was born from Roe. The March on Washington every year for pro-life causes. That was a direct response to this opinion. So look, I think that we're dealing with an issue that's unique. There's nothing else like abortion in our polity. And if the court can sort of separate itself from it, we'll be in a much better position. Well, I, I agree with you. And look, I mean, I don't think I'm going to agree with most of the way that uh, that this is going to fall out at the state level in legislatures, because my opinion is 
to the right of the center in American politics. I mean, I was just discussing this on uh, with, with somebody else on a podcast, which is that, you know, I, I'm against abortion basically across the board. But I recognize that I'm, a, I'm very much in a minority position, just the same way that people who are abortion absolutists saying that there sh it should be unfettered until the moment of birth are <laughs> on the outside of this thing. Most people in America want some sort of limited access to abortion, primarily in the first trimester. And frankly, I think that that's eventually where the states are going to come down on this. But the process of getting there is going to be a lot healthier than what we've gone through over the last 50 years. And that's going to benefit all of us, even the people whose positions might not end up prevailing. Right. Uh, this goes to the states now. And I think what we'll see is that in California, abortion is illegal to the moment a baby's born. And in Texas, it will be illegal in just about every circumstance. And for a while, for a while, for a while, I, right, there might be yeah. a backlash. There's no guarantee these laws stay in the books because people might say, whoa, hold your horses. This is going too far. It'll be a political give and take. There's no guarantee that a, a, a zero week abortion ban stays. Yep. I, I even in Texas, where I live even now. In Texas. Yeah. Even yeah. In Texas. Even in Texas, I think that you get to a point and people are going to say, wait a minute. Uh, no, we need to roll this back just a little bit and 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 have some options here eventually, because that's again, that's where the majority of voters are going to be. And that's what legislatures are supposed to represent, which is the the generalized will of the electorate. And I, and I think that as that plays out, our politics are going to get healthier and healthier. But but beyond this, Josh, I mean, there's other considerations beyond this, the first of which is. I mean, this draft was from February, so there's no telling where this is actually at right now. My guess is that it's been that, that was passed around. They've the people who are writing dissents are probably either finished with them or close to finish with them. They may have even shared them around the campfire at the Supreme Court. They may be working on final drafts, right? What does the Supreme Court do now? I mean, clearly, I think the idea was to release this on the final day so we could all get out of town. Yeah. yeah. I like the idea of a campfire, though. I'm trying to imagine <laughs> in the courtyard of the Supreme Court, the roasting marshmallows. And you know what? They should be throwing old opinions in there so they don't get leaked to Politico. They'll burn the opinions so they don't get leaked. That's actually a good idea. Well, you know, that's part of the process. I was reading this in, in some other place. I think it was at the corner, is that these are supposed to be burn barrels. Burn. Yeah. They're burn bags. If, if you have worked in government, a burn bag is basically a paper bag that you burn stuff in. And any confidential documents are burned. So whoever leaked this, it was not an act of negligence. Someone intentionally, deliberately, I won't say stole, took a uh, a, a, a draft opinion or, or a paper that should not be leaked. But going back to your question, by this point, the opinion has been modified, but we have a, a pressure here, right? We all have the draft and we all know how to compare a draft document to the final. It's called a red line for lawyers listening, right? You, you do a track changes, right? You compare the document left to right. And we'll know who made which changes and why they were made that they came from later in the process. So there are all these weird incentives of how to handle the situation. Um, there's no playbook. There's no handbook. There's no, we're in uncharted waters here. It's very uncertain what they do here. I actually propose that they get this over with and they release a one page decision saying overrule Roe v. Wade opinion to come later and, and move on with it. Cause I mean, I, I don't want to make light of this, but there's threat to safety, right? People are right. insane. Right. Some guy lit himself on fire at the Supreme Court last week. He, he self-immolated to protest 
global warming or something. I don't know exactly what his cause was. It, I, I think we should have extra security detail for the members of the court now. They are all in jeopardy. Uh, someone might respond irrationally. Well, I agree. And you, you discussed this idea of a per curiam order with opinion to follow. This has actually a precedent, ex parte clearing, which is not necessarily a, a gilded precedent, as, as you also oh. explained. This is this is not exactly it's exactly a shining example. It's not exactly a shining example that had more to do with the case and, and less to do with the process that was used. Right. So I'll, I'll give you the background. Maybe military people might appreciate this. Um, during World War II, the Germans had submarines in the Atlantic. Uh, about eight German soldiers, they were they're called the saboteurs, washed ashore on the East Coast. And they were like, we surrender. We don't want to go back to Germany. They'll kill us, right? So they basically surrendered to authorities. They were all tried in a military tribunal uh, in Washington, D.C., not in a court, but in the DOJ building, right? There's actually a room where you can go there and visit. Um, and they were all convicted, right? The Supreme Court had to decide, was this tribunal actually legal? So the, the court heard arguments like in the span of one or two days. And the very next day, they issued a one paragraph decision saying, uh, this is legal. It's fine. Right. Why do they move so quickly? Because FDR was going to execute the Germans, right? They're going to execute the spies. One of them was a U.S. citizen, by the way, very right. messy. Right. Um, so the court was like, uh-oh, what we say here doesn't matter because they're going to execute these guys. Let's just put an opinion as a placeholder, right? As like a marker. <laughs> and then we'll come back later and fill in the details, fill in the gaps. So it's not, it's not nuts. It's not nuts. Actually, you know, what's interesting about that case, and I read about it years later, Josh, is when I was a kid, my parents got me one of those, you know, um, one of those books for kids about, you know, the FBI. In this particular case, it was the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover. And this is, you know, probably in the, well, it would be early 70s, but it was probably published in the late 60s when, you know, J. Edgar Hoover was still seen as more heroic and the FBI was a little bit more heroic than maybe it's viewed now and or, and should have been. Um and that was actually one of the cases that this book talked about was, oh, the, you know, the FBI caught these guys, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, and, you know, they were, they were put to death and this type of thing. And, you know, going, yay, FBI. And it wasn't until later on, it was like, well, they caught them because two of them, I think, turned themselves in and ended up getting executed anyway, <laughs> because the FBI wanted to keep it quiet that they turned themselves in because they wanted to have this reputation as being, you know, world beaters in Intel. And uh, yeah, the whole thing was, <laughs> was a whole lot more different than what it was explained to me as a child, right. In this, in this book. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, that is a process that they could use. And the, I mean, the other, the other question would be, has this process, this collaborative process by which you'd have a uh, majority opinion, fully formed dissents and, and, you know, a ready to go um, product, if you want to put it in those terms, if they're there, maybe they just release it now rather than wait to the end of the term. Um, yeah, I mean, could. that that would probably be the best of all possible worlds, but there's no guarantee that they're actually done. No, I agree. I suspect they're not done. Otherwise, they could release it. They need to tweak it. They need to respond to the sense, and that takes time. But the longer this drags on, the more risk there is. I mean, look, what if there's another leak, right? right. What, what, what if there's a rogue law clerk who says, like, Flight 93, I'm going down, and starts releasing opinions in the gun case and the religion cases, right? We don't know where this leads. 
if someone is intent on destroying the court, they might burn the entire thing down. Yeah, that 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 does concern me. It's actually something I hadn't considered a lot until you just mentioned it. But yes, I mean that that is, and that's another reason to try to get this thing, you know, rip the bandaid off basically and get this thing out as fast as possible. Um, do you think that? Um, by the way, I should mention this over at Reason.com. You can look up um, Josh Blackman. You can you can get links to everything he's writing on this. He's written a ton of stuff on this already. And he's running on other issues, too. I mean, his, his latest is originalism in the lower courts. Is absolute prosecutorial immunity correct as an original matter? Uh, so, you know, go read everything that he's writing over there. But, um, but you know, just focusing on this, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm curious to know what... Um, what Alito might have already known about in the dissents, in the way that he framed this. We really should get into the opinion itself, because as you said, it's really a masterpiece. And and yours was the first analysis that I read that was based on actually a whole reading of the opinion. I've since read it. Um, and I do think that he anticipates a lot of arguments. I think that he also is very good at putting this in uh, very stark terms, right? I mean, there's really no... There's really no soft edges to this. He's basically blasting the rogue court as as being rogue, um, and that this entire issue is um, is you know just fails on constant you know con law one hundred and one grounds. He is not pulling punches here. Um, if Roberts had been writing this, it would have I think been a much different document. Even if it was more or less the same outcome, I think it would have been a much different document. Right. I mean, look, Alito wrote an opinion that is sort of like a um, a culmination of 50 years of critiques of Roe. He gets everything in there. He gets the contemporary critics. He gets critics later. He goes all the way back to the framing, all the way back to the 14th Amendment was ratified. He hits every conceivable point. Uh, he leaves no stone unturned. It's really a masterful opinion. I hope it sees the light of day in largely the form I've seen it in. If there are some changes made, we know why they were made. I hope we get to see the light of day. And if not, well, I can teach his opinion anyway. You know, I'll, I'll teach it to my <laughs> students. We re really pissed them off. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. If you're listening, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. This is not an exam. It's not me. No, it's, I mean, actually, I'm, I'm not teaching con law this semester, but I can imagine if I was teaching con law, some smart Alex student would say, aha, no Roe v. Wade. It's, but anyway, that, that, that's not the deal. Uh, yeah, I mean, but I, I think that this talks, to, it speaks to the fact that who authors these opinions matters, right? And and the choice of Alito to author this opinion, I'm curious as as to why Alito and not Clarence Thomas, and if Roberts was in on the concurrence, which apparently, you know, rumor is that he's not, or he's not going to, he's not fully in on the on the majority opinion. He might concur in part. He might dissent entirely. Um, why Alito would be the person who's writing this. What is it, how, how, maybe you can explain for, for viewers exactly, you know, how that process works, who gets to author opinions and why, why Alito might've been the guy in this case. Right. So the usual rule is a case is argued. And after a case is argued, there's a conference where the justice discuss a case and each judge says, here's what I'm going to vote. They start with the chief and they work their way down. Okay. After the votes are cast, there is an assignment made. Who will write the opinion? Okay. Who gets to make the assignment? It's usually the chief justice if he's in the majority. 
But if the chief justice is not in the majority, then the most senior judge in the majority makes the assignment. So what happened here? It's possible that Justice Roberts was not in the majority, and therefore Justice Clarence Thomas assigned the opinion to Alito. It's also possible that Roberts was in the majority and gave it to Alito anyway, because they thought Alito could hold the court together better. Um, we don't know. I think the most likely scenario is that Roberts was not with the majority. He was like saying, I'm not sure because I'm John Roberts, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how it would have sounded. I'm not sure. <laughs> I have to go check the Washington Post, right? Um, but Thomas was probably in the majority. And I think Thomas recognized that Alito is the best person for this case. He is a sharp writer. He's very concise. He won't get distracted by various detours. And there's no chance in hell. Hell will freeze over before Sam Alito changes his mind. So this will be a solid assignment. There won't be any issues. Yeah, I, I, I just suspected on the 5-3 basis and the fact that Alito was writing it, that Roberts is going to be on, on the majority. Um, or if he is, he's going to be late to join. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the criticisms that are coming down, some of the projections, right? I mean, there's been some ridiculous um, mm -hmm. hysterical reactions to this. And none other than, you know, uh, constitutional expert Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. claimed that this could lead to LGBTQ children being excluded from classrooms. Um, I have no idea. There, this is one of those, you know, five dimensional leaps of, of logic that they got there. But you do have people saying, look, if, if, he could, if, he, if you reverse Roe v. Wade on, on privacy issues, you're going to lose Obergefell. You could lose Obergefell. You could uh, you could lose, um, you know, Lawrence versus Texas, Lawrence versus Kansas, separate case. Um, uh, you could go all the way back to, you know, Griswold and Loving, right? And all of these things could be reversed if you reverse Roe. I, I kind of argued that that's not the case, but I'm interested to hear what your reaction is to that and why it, it, and it's something that Alito actually does address in this opinion specifically. Look, um, when we're talking about abortion, it's a very unique issue. And Alito talks about this. Alito says that abortion is unique among other sort of uh, uh, rights in that someone is literally killed, right? A an unborn life is taken. Right. Um, with gay marriage, that doesn't happen, right? With, with, with contraception or birth control, that doesn't happen. So I think there's a way you can distinguish abortion from these other areas. But let's say you don't believe Alito, right? Alito says, we're not talking about the other issues. We, you know, we don't talk about Bruno, right? Let's say, let's say uh, that, 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 that that's not accurate. There's no national movement to overrule interracial marriage, right? There's no national movement to ban uh, birth control. There's no march on Washington to reverse gay marriage. I think even the most staunch conservatives might say they don't agree with gay marriage, but there's not a movement to overrule those cases. So even if you don't believe Alito, I think he's lying as a political matter. These are, I think these are sort of red herrings. These are not things that are really likely to happen. Well, right. And I mean, first off, I think if you're talking about Griswold and Loving, those were kind of decided at least in part on uh, privacy, especially Griswold. Right. Uh, and maybe Lawrence versus Texas and Lawrence versus Kansas, too. But I mean, Obergefell was pretty much an equal protection clause 14th Amendment issue. Um, loving was as well because that wasn't really the issue here wasn't private conduct it was government recognition of a of uh, of a relationship right and in in loving it was an interracial 
marriage between a man and a woman. In Obergefell, it was a marriage between two men. Um, and not just the marriage itself, but the government recognition of that marriage. So privacy really doesn't relate to that. And so the privacy arguments that Alito is making here really doesn't really don't relate to Obergefell or loving anyway. No. And look, the entire idea of privacy, let's think about this for a minute, right? Right. In Griswold v. Connecticut, the court said there's a right to privacy for a husband and wife to use contraception in the bedroom. It's a private matter. But an abortion is not private in the same sense. It's literally a procedure that takes place in a medical office with doctors and nurses looking over. At least maybe now there's medicine, right? But at least historically, right. it was a medical procedure. There's not much privacy in an abortion clinic, right? I mean, people are looking over your shoulders. So now it's not just privacy in the bedroom. It's actually privacy to make your own choices. So it's a broader sense of liberty. So even if Rose overruled, that doesn't go back to Griswold. It doesn't, it doesn't nullify what the court held there. Um, so I think it's, people are afraid of this, but I think it's, it's posturing. Well, I think it's posturing too. I think this is a, uh, it's posturing for the purposes of demagoguery, for the purposes of fundraising and, and, you know, goosing turnout in midterm elections. And that, that may be something that's a little too far afield for, for what you want to discuss on this. But I mean, that's, that to me is, is where that's going. But, um, you know, you, you mentioned that we we're going to have to wait and see. And I, I've been saying this as well. You're going to have to wait and see what the eventual outcome is. Just if you had to guess, and you can put it in terms of percentage, right? How much of this draft opinion do you think survives on publication, especially now that it's leaked and it's out there? Um, is 100%, 90%, 80%? Do you think that the, and, he, and do you think the 5-3 the five, stands up? It could be 0%. Yeah. Look, it could be zero. I don't, I don't count my chicken before the cat uh, before they hatch. I really don't. I, I get burned too many times. So I, I am presuming I see none of this in the actual final opinion. I'll be pleasantly surprised if I do. Maybe it'll be dissent. For what we know, could be. You could you could have you could have people flip back. I mean, people don't understand that these are fluid. These 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 votes can be t can can be at least fluid until you get to the final product. Yeah, there, it's not over till it's over. Until we get the actual opinion, not this little leaked draft nonsense, the actual opinion, it ain't over. And the Chief Justice is a very mischievous person. Um, and even despite everything going on now, I still think he's going to try and pull tricks and try and persuade people to leave the opinion and do whatever it is that he's going to do. So one final question on that basis, because this is what I kind of expected, right? And I, I mentioned it, I think, on Monday night when I was writing about this is I suspect that what John Roberts really wants is to, I mean, this, and this is, this is sort of an ironic way of putting this, but split the baby by overruling Casey, but keeping Roe. Um, oh. I don't know how you do that. I don't even know how constitutionally you do that. I don't know how intellectually you do that. doesn't matter. Roberts doesn't care about the law. It's irrelevant. He cares about how, how, he's, how, how, how things are appearances, right? Appearances matter to him. So he'll have an, I mean, his ruling in Obamacare, it's a tax, it's a penalty, who cares, right? Let's call the whole thing off, potato, potato. Um, you know, uh, his ruling in the census case, his ruling in the DACA case, right? In all these cases, you reach these sort of barely coherent principles that decide just one case that, that are not about law anymore. So I, I don't trust him for anything. I think he'll do whatever he wants to do. Only question is whether Kavanaugh and Barrett will go along with this nonsense. 
Yeah, and I think that that's what Alito was talking about too when it came because he he speaks about this sort of you know ad hoc. Um, I, I forget how he puts it, but basically it's making it up as you go along and. I think that that was a not so thinly veiled shot at the current chief justice, among other, among others, of course. That but, works. Yeah, Josh Blackman, what's what's coming up next for you? Let's talk. Let's uh, give you a chance to 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 do some promotion here. Where can people find you? What's coming up next for you? Uh, I write the Vol Conspiracy at Reason dot com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Josh M Blackman. I have a uh, a book, 100 Supreme Court cases everyone should know. We'll have a second edition coming out later this year so definitely order your first edition while it's still available and i'm just very grateful i can my, my career is talking about the law it's the best job in the world there you go well i say i think my job is the best job in the world because i get to talk to people who want to talk about the law <laughs> and so i have lots of fun doing this josh blackman thank you so much for being with us and Thanks, uh, next time next time all right stay tuned for more from the ed morrissey show we'll be right back Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. On Thursdays, as always, we talk to the great Generalissimo, Dwayne Patterson, at Radio Blogger on Twitter, master of the universe, H-U-G-H-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.com, the troll-free web surfing experience for Hugh Hewitt fans and listeners. And I'll be guest hosting on Monday. We'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment. But first, the one thing that never happens in the universe, because Dwayne is the master of the universe, is the universe doesn't leak information that could get the United States into a war. Dwayne, what the hell? The New York Times today reporting that U.S. intel is targeting Russian generals on the battlefield. Yeah, that's a, that's a great leak to have out there. What a, what, what a great thing to put out there. Pushed by senior, senior American officials, no less. When we were kids, there was only one Ellery Queen mystery a week, right? Right. It was... <laughs> it was it was, you know, and just yesterday, just last night, we were talking about the Ellery, uh, Ellery Queen and the and the Purloin letter uh, uh, keeper, right? Right, exactly. Yes, and 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 now we've got Ellery Queen and the and the um, loose loose lips sink ships um, edition, <laughs> and, so- and the and, and the he's oh my god he's going to get us all killed edition. Um, so. Yeah, there, there's there's multiple ways to read it. I think you and I kind of had two different uh, two different takes of, of who the senior American official is. You're thinking it's got to be White House, which it certainly could be. I was thinking it was Intel. And you know, it's funny because I think both of us were surprised to hear the other's take on this. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I'll explain my take very quickly. The the New York Times credits the New York Times report on this credits the their sources as senior American officials. To me, that says White House. To you, you read it as intelligence, which I, I completely read, different I, motivation, if that's the case. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we of course, heard, you know, senior American officials or, or senior officials uh, all during the Trump years. And actually, a lot of times during the, the tail end of the George W. Bush years, where, um, you know, the intel community was at odds with the with the white house and so they did selective leaks all the time and in in order to to hamstring and and dismantle a a republican presidency so you know it 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 struck me as oh my god joe biden's lost the intel community they've turned on it that was that was my first take on it but uh you know you're thinking this is this is a you know we gotta we gotta uh puff up this this president somehow anyway any 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 shape or form 
but who is this going to puff him up with? Who who's who's he who's he going to win over? I mean, if this is a, if this is a Ron Klain special, right? If this is a Prime <laughs> Minister Klain trying to trying to uh, give Joe Biden some some kind of talking point, something to shift the narrative to from everything else, uh, pre- presuming that he's now going to be a tough guy on this. It's not going to win anybody over on the left. The left are pacifists, right? The progressives are pacifists. This is not going to make them happy at all. Uh, no, but I, I do have to say that the whole Ron Klain special thing is really appealing. I mean, uh, uh, going back to the Allman Brothers, <laughs> <laughs> let the Ron Klain special shine a lot on me. Let That's... the Ron Klain special shine its ever-loving light on me. That was, was that Allman Brothers? That was the band, wasn't it? Oh, it may, I, I think the Almond Brothers. No, I think you're right. I think it was the band. You're right. It was I think, the band. I think. I think it was the band that did that. No, uh, it was midnight. It was a midnight special, right? Yeah, it was midnight special. I'm wondering if they both did it. But you're right. The band definitely was the one that that, that was, had that was, the big yeah. hit with it. Yeah. Um. Oh well. Um. So much for that. So much for that uh, cultural <laughs> reference. Um. Moving on. <laughs> moving on after 1972. Um. I mean, this doesn't make any sense at all, except as a way to puff Joe Biden up at the expense of American national security. They're trying to argue here that the U.S. is some sort of world beater, right? That that this is uh, that that the, the that the U.S. is providing more support than you know for Ukraine because uh, you know Zelensky is has become through through force of circumstance. Volodymyr Zelensky has become the type of uh, national leader that people naturally admire. And we've talked about this, I think, uh, maybe it was in the, the podcast. If we didn't talk about it in the podcast, we talked about it while you guys were on the cruise, which right. is that Zelensky is really demonstrating uh, one, of the card- well, one of the cardinal virtues, right? One yep. of the cardinal virtues is is courage. And, it's, and as C.S. Lewis put it, courage is the, uh, is the quality of all virtue at its testing point right it, right it's, it's very attractive uh, very attractive it's, it's it's one of the most attractive uh, traits that that are out there um it, yeah we talked about it when we were on the cruise um or you talked about it with hugh when you're on the cruise in fact i think hugh baited you into writing a column on it he did actually and i'm actually yeah. glad he did he says you should be writing about this it's like yeah, yeah. maybe i maybe i really should um, so so yeah. all this is so all this is going on and you know joe biden is not even playing second fiddle he's he's you know like you know fourth trumpet in in this in this orchestra he's just kind of following along wherever he follows along now don't don't get me wrong I'm not opposed to the idea of whacking Russian generals. I am not opposed at all to using American power to weaken Russia in this thing. Russia is is the bad actor in this stage, Absolutely. and I have no problems putting our thumb on the scale. So I'm I'm not I'm not upset at all that this is indeed what we're doing. But you don't. It's it's Fight Club, right? Right. The first. The first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. Yeah, you don't talk about you don't talk about um, Russian general targeting club ever. I mean, no, you don't even you, you don't even talk you, about it ten years down the road. You never no, talk about this. <laughs> or or if Russia has completely fallen and Biden is no longer in office, and you want to write a memoir down the road, okay, so be it right that's fine but 
Um, but not in a not in a hot shooting war that we're actually doing this. I would argue that I would argue that even then, even at that point, it's 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 a it's huge bad. problem. It's it's, a, well, it, it's a huge problem because if there's other bad actors on the stage, they're going to think that we're going to meddle at, at in any given whim. Well, right? actually, that part I don't mind so much. But you know, the problem is is that you know the generals here may end up being the next regime in Moscow. <laughs> because because Putin the, the Putin regime may well collapse as part of this. Who replaces Putin? Well, if it's the generals, guess what? They've got a really great reason to expand a war uh, against NATO, or at least well, to or at least right. to conduct low level, plausible, deniable operations against if, against NATO. Again, if you're going to conduct covert activity and you're going to and, and you're going to you know secretly. Uh, help you know pop off these 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 Russian generals one at a time and, and and again I'm not against that policy if that's something we're doing but if it goes public and it goes public by your own hand then all you're doing is you're giving Vladimir Putin a propaganda win number one and number two you're leaving with with very few options to counter it outside of tactical nukes or well, yeah. Taking the next step forward, right? And, yeah, well, well, let me just give you a parallel. What did we do? <laughs> what did we do when Iran was uh, killing American servicemen? And this is this is just attacking American service positions. What did we do? We knocked we off. Our we we targeted we targeted and assassinated uh, 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 Soleimani, right? Qasem Soleimani, right? Qasem uh, Soleimani. And we, then we and we then stuck a jade, we stuck a JDAM up his ass, basically. Right. And we did it very publicly. We we made oh, no bones about so. it. That this was this was a retaliation for. Well, these retaliate. I mean, Iran tried to retaliate. They fumbled the retaliation and ended up shooting down a commercial uh, airliner and killing what is one hundred and seventy something people right. on this thing because they because they're morons and they don't know how to read a radar screen apparently. Um, although that was a parallel to what we did in what was it nineteen eighty nine or eighty seven? I think we had the we made the same mistake. Right. Um, in in um, in the Gulf in the Gulf area, with an Iranian uh, commercial liner, and um, so these are the types of things that you don't do unless you really want to get into a retaliatory tit for tat exchange with whatever power that you're dealing with. And the problem is is that you can do that with Iran to some extent, because Iran doesn't have a nuclear weapon, at least uh, not yet. At least not yet. Um, whereas Russia has thousands of them. And while their military may be incompetent, there is a certain quality to quantity still. Now, I, I think their quantity is rapidly diminishing, too. I think that I think the conventional threat from Russia, to the extent that it existed at all, is is pretty much now it, negated. It's weakening. And, and you can say, OK, four out of five of their you, you can try to extrapolate and say, OK, four out of five of their nuclear uh, weapons will malfunction or won't fire or, or won't detonate. OK, right. And, and and I think that's a, a, a whack wackadoodle way to assume. But let's say you assume four out of five don't make it, and only one of five get through. That's still several hundred. Yeah. And several hundred nukes around the world, or several hundred nukes aimed at you that you can't do anything about. That's gonna you know that can ruin your whole day, right? Yes, it would ruin your whole existence. So, so here's here's what I don't get, and again, we're going to go off your we're going to let, let, let's game both these out. Let's go by your theory that this is a a Ron Klain special. 
or somebody in the White House, uh, an Anthony Blinken, which I don't, I, I, I can't buy it being a Blinken thing because Blinken's a freaking pacifist too, unless he's trying to, it's one of two things, right? It's either it's either an attempt by somebody in the administration to uh, puff up Joe Biden with an undetermined recipient audience, meaning I don't know who's going to say, well, thank God Joe Biden's finally in charge and do something. Is he going to win over Republican votes because of that? Is he going to win over uh, independence because of that? I don't think so. Yep. He's not going to win over anybody on the left that he doesn't already have. Right. So I don't know, you know, uh, you know, who benefits the famous Latin phrase, right? Who, Qui bono. Um, Qui bono, who, who benefits. So it's either you're trying to puff them up to, to bump them in the polls for some reason, or number two, it's somebody in the White House who got wind of it and doesn't like that's what we're doing and has leaked it to try to damage Biden. Yeah, I I, I don't it's, think it's, that, got, it's got to be one of the two, right? Well, I don't see Intel as being a likely suspect here because it this would risk the Intel. This would risk the Intel assets that are that are feeding this information. Um, which is probably Intel's probably going to be pretty pissed about this now that it's out too for that reason. I, I see this the the only possible benefit to to putting this out there is to sort of um, transfer a little bit of Zelensky's uh, glamour onto Joe Biden as a wartime leader, and that's it. That's it. But uh, but but again, outside of of stroking his ego, what politically does it gain him? I mean, realistically, what does it gain him? I mean, what does it gain him to to issue a ten thousand dollars student, you know, student loan forgiveness claim on you know means tested um, recipients? Because well, well, because at least you can point to polling that shows that uh, eighteen to twenty five year olds have completely cratered in their support well, form. And did you see the political art? Did you see the political did, article I this did, morning? But, but, <laughs> even but his own, did, even his own vice president doesn't think it's going to help. I, and, and I, for the first time I can actually say, I agree with him, yeah. but you can at least make a political case why they're desperate enough to do the student loan amnesty because they're trying to pander and pay off the, the youth vote. And get them back out there and energized again. I mean, you you can at least make a political calculation of why they're trying to do it. As far as this, what political what political gain do they get outside of just stroking his ego? Who who are they going to win to their side that they yeah. didn't already have? I you're asking me to explain how the Biden White House operates strategically, and my simple answer to this is they don't. They don't. They, they just don't. don't. Somebody right. somebody thought that this would help. There's no strategy involved here. Ron Klain, between Ron Klain, Kamala Harris, and Joe Biden, there isn't a single strategic brain cell in their collective heads. So so if this is what they come up with, then dear God, they're going to get us killed. And if that's the case, then what was the logic for saying we can't send the planes and can't do that plane deal to Poland? Because because that would be too provocative. Right. That would be... <laughs> I mean, and again... I mean, what I'm the sure hell? the I'm sure the Russians suspected this. I also think I might be a little oversold, and I, I you know I wrote about that in in my in my post about this because 
the Russian communication systems are a mess. They're having to use cell phones to communicate with the units. They're, they're using open source technology that the Ukrainians can listen in on and understand. I mean, the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians speak Russian. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty close, right? Well, it's I mean, I mean, not that not that it's it's not that it's just Ukrainian and Russian languages are very similar. But they also speak Russian flat out. I mean, most, most, uh, right. A lot of them uh, speak Russian flat out on right. the on the cruise. Right. Um, our server and uh, the the Galadar in the in the dining room that uh, brought the drinks every night. Uh, they were both uh, very pleasant uh, gals, and they were both originally from Bulgaria. And we learned how to say some phrases and words in Bulgarian because they still use a Cyrillic alphabet too. Right. It, it's it's you know all those all those Slavic countries. The, the language is not too far different. You know. Which is one so of the, yeah. I mean that's one of the claims that you know um, Putin makes is that, that they're all Russians basically. In yeah, they're, the Slavs are the Slavs are all Russians, and so therefore all Slavs are um, are Russia's you know. Um, uh, domestic policy concerns. So, right. yeah, I mean that's that's part of the pretext of this thing, anyway. But, but, go, but going back to your point, where where the Russians are having to uh, communicate an open source device, it's not just it's not even just Ukraine that can understand it. Everybody in the region can. Well, understand yes, it. everybody, yeah, everybody in the region. But I mean, so if they're wondering why they keep getting their generals knocked off, I would I would say even apart from U.S. intel, it's probably more due to two other factors. One is that they're they're communicating over uncoded open uh, open lines of communication, and the right. second is that their troops are performing so badly that the, that the command officers have to go to the front to get operations in order, and it puts them in 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 easy range um, of being targeted, and and maybe not even targeted by, on purpose. They just are in positions that are going to get shelled. And end up getting killed as a result. Although I think a now, couple of these, at least a few of these, have been on, you know, have been targeted but, for a specific reason. But now here is here is the state of here is the state of play, which is which is absolutely frightening. That you and I have both danced around, but not actually said out loud. And I think that we both agree with, which is nowhere in this equation of who leaked it and why is Joe Biden making that decision even being considered as a possibility. No. Do you think Joe do you think Joe Biden is even aware of any of this going on around him? I don't think he is. Oh, you mean after that uh, fabulous press briefing yesterday in which he said that LGBTQ kids were going to be kept out of classrooms because of Alito's uh, opinion on Dobbs? <laughs> Basically being the figurehead to showing the the country that he does not know how to read a decision by Sam Alito that specifically answers that charge in the in the majority opinion, if that opinion holds. So that brings me so, to the, the, to so, the other so, big so story, Biden, right? So, so, right. You and I are basically both saying that there's no way Biden knows anything about this. This is all being done behind Joe Biden's back because everybody knows grandpa is 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 too busy introducing people to the furniture. Yeah, I, I, I think this is a wrong claim special. It's a Ron Klain special. You're it absolutely right be, about it. Doesn't it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it has to be a Ron Klain special. I, I don't disagree with you on that. Let's talk about the other big story this week, yep. which is the Alito draft that got leaked. Um, right. I have a you haven't seen this yet. I got to post it. It's going to be up by the time this this podcast comes up, but it's uh, it's still waiting to to go up as as we speak here. 
I it's it's marinating. It's, it's marinating. It's, it's, it's it, aging. It's yeah. It's 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 getting that smoky flavor that you like. Yes. You know? It's it, it, it's it's getting that. Mes- that mes- I'm in Texas. I'm in Texas. It's, it, it's got to get that mesquite uh, flavor. Uh, <laughs> low and it. slow, baby. Low and slow. That's what I yes, do. Low and yes, slow. Yes. Yes. So here is here is my my question for you. Did Samuel Alito just save the legislative filibuster? No. You sure about that? Yes, and I'll <laughs> yes, and I'll tell and I'll tell you why. Okay. Um, they didn't have the votes for it. Status quo. Joe Manchin was never going to go for it. Um, Kirsten Cinema was never going to go for it. Mitch McConnell when he takes over the Senate in the fall. And I don't think this changes the calculus at all. I still think the Senate's going to uh, be a plus two, maybe a plus three at the outside. If we, if we get a tailwind, maybe a plus four, but certainly no more than that. But Mitch McConnell will be more than likely the Senate majority leader. Mitch McConnell was never for the legislative filibuster. He still isn't. I, I think, I think you can probably safely say that Sam Alito um, put that capstone on the on the on the uh, on the uh, brick wall, but the but the brick wall and the mortar was already set by Mitch McConnell a long time ago. I, well, I, I I don't think it was I don't I don't think it was really much in jeopardy, but you can maybe say that Sam Alito um, not only not only reinforced it with rebar, but put. Uh, um, you know, but put extra coating around it just to make sure the wall would never come down. I, I, I think the legislative filibuster was pretty safe with McConnell alive. Well, first off, that presumes that McConnell would remain majority leader in 2025 when this would actually be um, an issue because in 2023, Joe Biden's still going to be president, either Joe Biden right. or Kamala Harris, right? Right. So it wouldn't even be an issue until 2025, at which point McConnell's in his 80s and maybe he's not the majority leader anymore. Um, Fair point. But but I think that knocking out Roe changes all the incentives here and that Democrats now have to worry that when Republicans get in office, that they will enact a federal abortion ban or something very close to it uh, on straight party line votes once they get control of all three electoral levers in Washington, D.C., and that's especially true if Democrats are the ones to knock out the filibuster. Oh, Democrats are going to fall in love with the with the with the filibuster. Oh, yeah. you betcha! As soon as as soon as Kevin McCarthy and and uh, and Mitch McConnell are running things, and especially in twenty four when you elect a Republican president, and you oh, got yeah. oh, are you kidding me? Of course they're going right, to love right. the filibuster. So so this is this is my point: is that the incentives have now changed for both parties, really. To where that legislative filibuster is like the last safe harbor. And Samuel Alito is the guy who did it by knocking out Roe. Because prior to that, they could always, Democrats could always fall back to Roe. They, you know, you know, Republicans could pass whatever they want in the Senate. If it didn't, if it didn't uh, pass muster with Roe and Casey, actually, especially Casey, then it wasn't going to go anywhere, right? right. They, you, they could just you, take it to right. court and the court would throw it out. We, the, the legislative filibuster is basically mutually assured destruction, Senate edition. Right. I mean, especially it, it, now, especially now, though, that, especially that, now. that legislation matters on this. Sure. Before it didn't matter. 
They could always take it to court. They could always get it thrown out. Well, now that Roe and Casey have been set aside as precedents, they don't have that option anymore. The legislative filibuster is the only break that they have on this now. And for the last couple of days, I mean, you've heard people everywhere from Elizabeth Warren to uh, uh, Ed Markey to Maisie Hirono to um, uh, all all sorts of Democrats. uh, Amy Klobuchar even came down with this. Um, Barbara Lee in, in the House, lots of lots of House members, which doesn't matter because they're not in the Senate. It's not their they don't have to live by the by the consequences of it. Right. But there's lots of Democrats that are that are doing the you know the, the scaremonger, uh, scaremongering and, and the demagoguery by saying we've got to get rid of the filibuster right now. We've got to codify Roe. We we need it. We need to do that right now while we still can. There's Democrats aren't going to do it. They don't have the votes for it. They're not going to no. do it. Cinema's not going to do it. Manchin's not going to do it. Susan Collins isn't going to go for it. Nobody wants to blow that up because they all want they all want on something this white hot and this this big of a deal. If they if somebody tries to pull this off, they want to make damn sure this doesn't squeak through on a 51 vote uh, in majority. That's exactly right. And because they'll tear the country apart. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think what happens is that the country has a hair pulling uh, exercise for a short period of time, and then just gets down to legislating on this. Right. Stuff. We, and we talked about this last night in the after we did. show. Yeah. It's, it's not hard to, to see how this is going to play out. It was like the immigration deal that there, there was a deal out there. And you and I talked about this for years. Yep. There, there was a trade to be made. There was a deal to be had, but the Democrats couldn't take yes for an answer. The question here is going to be: Will pro-lifers take uh, take yes for an answer? The the what's going to happen here when Roe gets overturned and this eventually goes to the states? Most states, not all of them. There are going to be some that are extreme, one one side or the other, and they're going to go you know full full tilt constitutional. Damn, damn Alexa. <laughs> you guys, I actually tried to mute my microphone. Apparently it didn't work because you stopped dead as soon as I said that. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we, we all we all live under the tyranny and threat of, of, of Alexa. We we do indeed. We do indeed. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, I, I, you know, there, no, there's there's gonna be states like California that are gonna go full tilt abortion. In fact, they're gonna try and turn California into a, 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 an abortion uh tourist state come to come to california stay here for free get your abortion go to disneyland go home right i mean they're going to go full tilt and there's going to be states like mississippi or other states that might do a full abortion ban you know there's going to be the extremes right but most of the states they're going to probably when it's negotiated down and the state legislatures uh, get around to actually having to, to decide this and debate it it's going to be probably a 14, 15 week. Um, uh, first 15 weeks is probably fine because that's kind of where the majority of the country is. And then you get past 15 weeks in the second trimester, third trimester, and there's going to be a lot of states that ban it because that's kind of where the country is. Right. Right. Um, and the problem, I think, for Democrats, and we talked about this a little bit on the after show last night because you played this clip. I won't play it now. Um it's on, I, I have it up in, at hot air this morning, um, is the Tim Ryan clip that you played last night where he's talking with Brett Baer about, about, you know, um, abortion right. and how, what, you know. What, it, were the, what were the three words that the Democrats used for decades 
to to message the abortion issue. They they didn't say, yep, we want to kill babies all the way up to delivery. That was never what they said. They said three words. Safe, legal, and rare. Safe, legal, and rare. Right. They're, they're not for abortion. They just want the protection there just in case of XYZ uh, instance. And as you said last night, I think Republicans, I think pro-lifers would gladly make the choice. Okay, fine. Take those three instances of, you know, uh, the, the psychological issue, the, the uh, incest, the rape, all of that stuff. And okay, fine. We'll allow, we'll allow abortions all the way up to delivery for those cases and those cases alone and everything else is now banned because it should elect democrats aren't going to go for that no no well and and you can see this in ryan's answer which is entirely incoherent i actually transcribed it so people could read it right so you know it's bear bear asks as a senator would you have any limits on abortion and ryan at first says look i think what we what we had established in a row is something we continue to work we can continue to work with and i think those can be the parameters, right? Well, Roe is first trimester only. So there's a lot right. of limits on Roe. It's only when you get to Casey that these things start to disappear. Um, and then he goes on about, well, you know, this situation could be this way and that situation can be that way. And blah, 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 blah. You have the state, the government's going to force you to bring the baby to term. I, I'm not sure, there's crosstalk. I'm not sure exactly what he's and saying. Bear, well, Bear cut him off and said, right. but that wasn't my question. Yeah, my, my question, question about is, limits to abortion at any point. You know, late term. You as a senator, are you for limits of any kind on abortion? And he still did the humana, humana, humana. And then Brett says, so what you're saying is no. Yeah, he says, so and no is still- the answer. Yeah, and then he says, I, I, I want to quote this directly from Tim Ryan because this sure. struck me, right? Well, you and I sitting here can't account for all the different scenarios that a woman dealing with the complexities of a pregnancy are going through. How can you and I figure that out? Now, Dwayne, I have to say that I am a huge fan of F.A. Hayek's Road to Serfdom. But I never thought that I would hear a candidate from the party of central planning using Hayek's explanation economics to support abortion on demand at, you know, uh, for nine months. (laughs) Tell me that you are, tell me that you are politically bound to a party in which they are so extreme that you have to take a position that you frankly don't want to take. But you kind of have to. Right. That was a hostage video answer is what that was. Yeah. In the Mahoning Valley, in in I mean, in, in many parts of Ohio, if he were to say, no, I have no limits on, on abortion, because politically he has to, because that's how radical the Democrat, uh, Democratic Party has become on the issue. So he knows he has to naturally in order to stay uh, viable. It stay viable with the, with the progressives and with the uh, party nationally, but in Ohio, that issue is disastrous for him. The country or, or the, the the state is a red state. It's gotten redder over the last decade. Yep, and and, and much redder, much redder this week. The turnout, uh, the turnout differential between the two primaries, where both parties had competitive primaries in both the Senate and the gubernatorial races, was two to one in favor of Republicans. That was the turnout differential. Uh, differential. And, and and by the way, the Trump factor in that, just just on, on a side note, as long as we're talking about the turnout. Yep. The the Trump factor. The two top candidates. Well, I mean, you can you can put Josh Mandela in there, but. There were two candidates that saw a late surge post-Trump um, endorsement. Right. It wasn't Josh Mandel. 
the two were Matt Dolan and J.D. Vance. Right. Trump's endorsement basically got J.D. Vance about a 10-point bump. It also gave Matt Dolan about a 10-point bump because of the anti-Trump vote in Ohio. Right. So Trump, just like the 2020 election, and I know I'm going to piss a lot of people off by saying this, I don't care, it's analysis. Trump generated more votes for him in 2020 than anybody else in the history of, of the country. He also, at the same time, generated more votes against him yep. because he's that, that, that polarizing of a figure. In Ohio, he generated a 10-point bump for J.D. Vance, which is what he intended. The unintended consequence is he also generated 10 points for the anti-Trump candidate, which was Matt Dolan. Yep. Yep. So it's an, that that is an interesting take on that. I, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, we're almost out of time though, Dwayne. So we have to talk about what's coming up on Thursdays after show in the evening, 8 p.m. Eastern time, and then Friday and Mondays, Hugh Hewitt show. Well, to be perfectly brutally honest, after two weeks off, I shouldn't be doing it, but I am not doing an after show tonight because I have a little league game I need to umpire. I haven't umpired in two weeks, and I've got a game tonight, so I'm going to play hooky and, and umpire a game. Uh, I will be on with Lilacs tomorrow and doing a Baker's Dozen and all the all the fun stuff we do Excellent. on Fridays. Um, as far as tomorrow, uh, we're going to do movies with Sonny Bunch again. Larry Arn's going to be back. Um, there is, I think, a chance of who, which senator was supposed to be on tomorrow. I think we've got a senator or two that that are that are being lined up for tomorrow too. So I'm sure we'll keep uh, we'll keep on this. We had. Um, uh, a couple of different candidates today. We, uh, we had a guy on today named Latham Sadler, who nobody's ever heard of, but he is a retired Navy SEAL who is trying to do the unstoppable, which is run for Republican Senate in Georgia against um, against Herschel Walker. <laughs> now, I, now, I understand he doesn't have a prayer. I get that. But listening to him, if Herschel Walker didn't exist, Sadler would be probably the most articulate and best candidate nationally the Republicans have for Senate. He's that good. Excellent. All right. Well, I'm going to be looking forward to that. And of course, Monday, I'll be guest hosting on the Hugh Hewitt show. You from... will indeed. You will indeed. Looking uh, forward to that. Hugh's, uh, Hugh's just taken a, a three-day or to kind of catch up from everything else. Uh, I think Landy Chen's going to be on. Selena Zito will be on. Jake Sherman. We've got all sorts of people lined up. Uh, it's going to be a great show. I'm really looking forward to uh, talking to Landy. I mean, that's, uh, he picked up the, was it the Los Angeles Times endorsement? It, 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 and what does that say about, uh, about California of, of California politics? If the LA Times is now worried about money in the state and wants somebody to keep track of it and they don't trust the Democrats to do it. That's, yeah. that's, that's just wild to me. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Should be a great time on Monday morning and hopefully everybody will be there. Dwayne Generalismo Patterson, until next week then, thanks for being here today. You got it, thanks for having me. All right, folks, stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show coming up right after this. This is Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com for Town Hall. Do religious groups have the same right to speak in the public square as other secular organizations? 
The Supreme Court ruled unanimously this week that they do. Boston offers a flagpole for groups to use for ceremonial purposes as a demonstration of the city's diversity without endorsement of any of the messaging. When it came to a Christian group, however, Boston suddenly decided that allowing them access would violate the Establishment Clause. The Christian flag was the only application the city rejected. Justice Breyer's opinion rebukes Boston for viewpoint discrimination, but misses the forest for the trees. Concurrences from Justices Kavanaugh, Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas rebuke the majority for extending ambiguity around both the definition of private speech as well as the reach of the Establishment Clause. The court needs to resolve these issues. This decision is a start. The upcoming ruling on Coach Joseph Kennedy, the praying football coach, needs to finish the job. I'm Ed Morrissey. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. I am very pleased to introduce to you uh, one of the Republican candidates for governor of the great state of New Mexico, my neighbor to the west, actually, now that I'm in Texas, um, Rebecca Dow, who is a three-term uh, member of the uh, State House of Representatives there. she's uh, She is actually stepping out of an important uh, committee meeting on social studies and, and, and education to talk with us today about, well, social studies, education, and a whole bunch of other things that are uh, important to New Mexico voters. Um, uh, Rebecca, thanks so, so much for sitting down with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ed. I appreciate the opportunity. So first off, um, make, let's make sure right off the bat people know where to find you. What's your website, your campaign website, so people can find out who you are? It's Rebecca at NM. Rebecca4nm.com. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Yeah, look us up. It's it's 20, uh, 37 days until the primary in New Mexico. And um, I'm so excited to set New Mexico's potential free. Yeah, this is, um, th I mean, this really is coming up fast, folks. It's uh, the first week of June is the New Mexico primary. There are five candidates. And of course, as always, we don't take we you know we don't we don't endorse here, but we do want to make sure that we give everybody, especially on the Republican side, a really good hearing so that people can know who they are. Um, and we won't get into who the other candidates are because we want to talk to Rebecca about her campaign. Before we get to the campaign, Rebecca, though, let's talk about the committee that you that you just <laughs> that we just yanked you out of. Um, uh, and uh, tell us what's going on with the social studies teaching um, uh, hearing that's going on right now. Well, so the, the, the discussion among the members of the committee, which is a very, very diverse group of, of representatives, Native American, African American, um, Hispanic, uh, Spanish, uh, uh, people who are results of interracial marriage, like myself, I'm a, I am a descendant, I'm a registered descendant of the Cherokee Nation. It's a very diverse group. And talking about uh, what is the appropriate objective history to teach and subjective history, including uh, questions that are being added to the, if you look up the definition of critical race theory, you find yep. these social standards, many of them. There's a lot of good standards. If you plug in the words that they're including, inequality, um, uh, social constructs of, 
of uh, racial inequity and, and the different type of words. Uh, imagine a rewrite the Constitution. Imagine a world where uh, the economics of, of our nation were different than capitalism. What would they look like? And I mean, these are these constructs, social constructs. You type in these words and you find critical race theory you now right. on the internet. And yet the discussion is there's no critical race theory and let's not politicize this. You know, I just brought up the question on a book that has been issued to the teachers across the state called Stamped from Birth. And the author of the book says that Republicans are white supremacists. The premise, the, the prefix of the book is full of political ideology. And yet they're sitting there telling us that this is, uh, is not critical race theory and it clearly is. That's why I wrote a bill to define critical race theory and to ban it. So if we're gonna argue about what it is or isn't, let's define it. And in my definition, it is teaching children that based on a sex or a race that they don't choose, that they are automatically oppressed or oppressors, or that they are, that they are, they are um, unable to achieve the American dream based on a race or a sex that they don't choose. Rebecca, I've, I've actually talked about this quite a bit. Now, the reason why we, we actually interacted on Twitter, um, which is, I guess, shortly about to be freer than it was. Um, that's a whole <laughs> other topic. It's a whole other topic, but at least it was free enough to where you and I were able to interact and you had passed around a, a clip of um, teacher training. Uh, that, that's very similar to what you're talking about right now. I'm sure it's also part of the mix in this committee hearing. And people were saying, well, that's not teachers teaching critical race theory. This is just a discussion among teachers. But I've been writing about this for about 13 years. Um, wow. I, used to, I used to live in Minnesota and the University of Minnesota required, at least at one time, required education majors to basically uh, declare that they were, um, I guess what we call it now is allies of, of a CRT type of movement and had to uh, disclaim their own biases and privilege as part of the requirement to actually get an education degree. Now, the university, this is 2009, the University of Minnesota rescinded that policy at the time. But I also said at the time, there's probably a lot of schools that are doing this. They're forming teachers to in this manner. And we're not talking about forming college professors. We're talking about, uh, you know, elementary school teachers, middle school teachers, high school teachers that um, that come out of these programs and then um, and then are oriented towards that type of education. Not that they can't make their own decisions down the line, but it was pretty clear how they were trying to form educators at the University of Minnesota, and I suspected in a lot of other places as well. And I think that what you sent around was basically the fruit of those efforts over the last 20 years or so. Yeah, and so in the discussion that I was having with the deputy secretary, she used the analogy, I think we've all seen it, it's the um, it's a comic or a drawing of three children at a fence trying to watch a baseball game. And it, it, not everybody can see over the fence to watch the baseball game. And so there's a wooden step or a ladder and to make everybody, it's talking about inequality and creating equality. And so when I asked like, yeah, you know, is title one for low income at risk children is IDEA that supplements services and education for disabled children. And these programs like pre-K and in New Mexico community schools and, and having school-based health clinics. And do you not see these things as the bench? But I want you to tell me what you think the fence is. What's the fence? Cause I'm sitting in a room with native American lawyers who are chairing an education committee. I'm sitting in a room, I'm sitting next to a, a person who identifies as Chicana, who teaches um, uh, 
cultural diversity and Chicana studies at a university. And so, I mean, the American dream is demonstrated as being achievable for anyone, just simply at looking at who our national leaders are in the state right now. So what's the fence? And they never really would say, um, but that video says it all. And it was pretty clear in that video that it is white people. White people right. are the fence. And that is exact. what am I? I am the result of interracial marriage. I'm the descendant of Cherokees who came to Oklahoma on the Trail of Tears, who intermarried with Scottish serfs who came on the land run. They had nothing. Everything was taken from them. They were both in servitude and slavery in a form of slavery. And I don't know where my home is, where I belong in this new world or where my children or grandchildren belong in this new definition. No, I think it's a great point, Rebecca. And uh, there's, there's, I mean, I could get into mine too. I mean, I, I like to joke around. I think it's a line from Stripes that, you know, my ancestors were chased out of every decent country in, <laughs> in Europe. <laughs> Basically, you know, I, my, my patrilineal lineage is from Ireland. Uh, you know, my, my matrilineal lineage is, is from Italy and Eastern Europe. Um, and none of my ancestors got to the United States until uh, mid to late 19th century. So we weren't around for, for a whole lot of the, a whole lot of the, the stuff that people are, you know, still, obviously, and I think we should teach that. And I don't actually have a problem. I don't actually, yeah, absolutely. And, and I know that you do too. I don't actually have a problem with even universities debating, discussing CRT. I mean, it's, universities debate a whole lot of things. <laughs> Most of them are well, kind of I, dumb, I but I, that's okay. Me, as a as an educator, as a parent, as a right. grandma, what concerns me is that, you know, Mexico was one of the lo most locked down states for the longest amount of time. Our children right. have uh, been demonstrated to have one of the worst learning losses in math and reading. And, and if you look at our statistics, which are finally the data, health data that's finally coming out, there's double the homicide, double the suicide. Uh, more children are self-harming. They are socially isolated. They're using way too much technology. They're self-reporting that they're uncertain about their future, they're medicated. And the last thing in the world we need to do in, the, in, in coming back together from this time of separation is point out the differences and tell them that based on a sex and a race they don't choose, that they're oppressed or oppressors. And right. that is what concerns me because I, I, I believe that every child, what should we be focusing on is that they reach their indi individual potential and they progress and graduate on time with a post high school goal in mind. I'm not sure where the subjective um, systemic racism is oppressing you and keeping you from getting there uh, fits. I don't think it fits. Right. I think it should stand. Well, and again, I mean, I think that uh, it's one thing to discuss it at the university level or at the college level, but it doesn't really belong in an elementary school. It doesn't really belong in middle or high school either, especially in a country that has a lot of trouble maintaining the academic standards that we used to be able to achieve 30 or 40 years ago. I don't think that the experiment into, um, into ideo uh, ideological indoctrination-driven education has proven to be a success, quite frankly. And, and that's just putting it mildly. I really, I really want our children to be able to have a well-rounded education that yep. starts with the foundation of the basics of reading and writing, yep. understanding the sciences. And there are so many ways to, you know, some of, some of the folks are like, it's this is about critical, critical thinking, problem solving. There are so many developmentally appropriate ways to teach that right. other than getting into the differences between um, folks based on things they can't control in the past and things they can't control in the future. Right. I've always said Who that their ancestors are where they came from and what their born sex and race is. 
Yeah, I mean, a, a, a priority on immutable characteristics inevitably is a dead end. It's a dead end in education. It's a dead end politically, because um, if you teach that that's the the uh, the priority, then there is no hope for resolution on anything, and basically you end up with segregation being the end game, and and, and that's terrible. It's absolutely terrible, and. Uh, you're not talking. You're, you're no longer talking about cohesion. You're talking about a breakdown in society and sort of tr political trench warfare is the ultimate outcome of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this well, is something we could talk about all day. We could. Day. Yes, yes, we could. But I also want to get to your campaign. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your campaign for governor. First off, tell us yeah. a little bit about your your qualifications for this and and. Obviously, this is going to be a big theme in your campaign, but it's not going to be the only one. Yeah, well, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a daughter of an oil field worker who became a preacher. So my dad moved, our family moved to Truth or Consequences, New Mexico when I was 10. And so that's where I grew up. And, and uh, I was in my sophomore year of college. And the first time my family completed a college degree, by the way. And um, I was in my sophomore year of college visiting my families and saw my, the community that raised me through a different lens. So we moved back when I was 26. I completed my degree online and uh, started opening up faith-based nonprofits that support families, vulnerable families, mostly minorities, helping them set a goal, set a dream and reach it so that they can move out of government dependency into self-sufficiency. So I spent 20 years doing that. It included all kinds of programs, uh, engaging the community to help develop those programs. I don't have ownership or interest in them, but launching these nonprofits uh, created 78 jobs, um, mostly women and mostly minorities doing the jobs as well. Uh, early childhood, home visiting, pre-K, a K-12 Christian school, after-school programs, behavioral health clinic, transitional housing, just lots of things like that. Um, and, and when my predecessor stepped down from the house, I decided to run. So one of my qualifications is I'm in my third term in the House of Representatives. Uh, I believe I can be the next governor of New Mexico because my district is 34% Republican and I just won my third term by 57 points. And that was with a libertarian and a whole lot of dollars from all the, the uh, people you all think of when we think about progressives targeting uh, the representative voice of people in their rural communities. You know, uh, George Soros, Michael Bloomberg, Planned Parenthood, uh, the, the people with power in the state of New Mexico, uh, any, all of those. And so, um, you know, able to overcome that and win. And that's with unelected bureaucrats throwing all kinds of shenanigans at me, you know, gosh audits, IPRAs, everything in the world you can imagine. So I, I am proven a uh, winner in the difficult climate of New Mexico democratic politics. And so I, I believe I can win. So I have legislative experience. I'm a, I'm a winner in a Democrat district and I'm a job creator. So, you know, I've invested this time in my district and in my state and I'm ready to govern. So um, that, I think those are the qualifications that set me apart and no one else you interview would be able to say those things. And so, yeah, we're hitting the ground running. So I did start the race with 3% name ID, and now we're over 80% name ID. And that's been hard work, volunteers in all 33 counties, you know, whatever we could do uh, to scrap up the dollars. It's been a hard, you know, hard race. And um, yeah, we're, we're pulling ahead. I, I think we're gaining momentum every day. And my main competitor, who's never created a job, um, has no legislative experience or any sort of governmental experience. It's difficult to see any sort of uh, risk he's taken at all to transform New Mexico uh, and, and remove it from poverty into self-sufficiency, had very, very significant name ID and quite a war chest. So let's focus a little bit on uh, a little bit on the general election, because obviously the, the yeah. Republican voters in New Mexico are going to want to have the candidate who is best able to take on Michelle Lujan Grisham, who is, I believe, running for re-election in this cycle. 
Correct. Oh, that would be me. That would definitely be me. I cannot wait to debate Michelle Lujan Grisham. Uh, this, this governor is so out of touch with the everyday New Mexican. She's being Congress. And it's like, it's like she's forgotten that she's no longer in Congress and that her job as governor is to lead this state and to care for the people who call it home. I mean, she is so out of touch that she just announced that she's getting married in Washington, D.C. And Kamala Harris is officiating the wedding. Yes, Kamala Harris, who's made no time to see our border and the crisis that we have our border and our governor who denies that there is a border crisis, she's getting married in DC and Kamala Harris is officiating the wedding. Like that, that is the governor that I'm going up against. And here I am a, a candidate who even during COVID knocked over 2000 doors. And when she says she saved lives, the statistics do not reflect that. The data does not reflect that. She cost us, our businesses, our economy, our children, our families, everything and brags about it. I have personal stories from every age and every scenario you can imagine uh, that I will remind her and the public during debate. So you mentioned the border crisis. Um, you know, I'm in Texas and, um, you know, it's a big deal God down here. Texas. God bless Texas. Well, God bless New Mexico too. Um, yeah. And uh, and Arizona and California. Um, and, um, and every state in the union. Right, right. Has a border crisis right now. They do, that's exactly correct. Um, obviously a little bit more acute for those of us who are actually in states that are living on that border and New Mexico, I think probably is, um, probably uniquely, uh, vulnerable based on the geography, also based on the, the, the type of governance that New Mexico has had, um, how fed up are people down there, uh, with, with the border crisis, um, and, do you see that as now a bipartisan issue um, in in New Mexico? It is absolutely a bipartisan issue in New Mexico, and the border communities are fed up. I am endorsed by four of the five border sheriffs. The, the fifth border sheriff is quite progressive and doesn't believe in the border or national sovereignty, and she would never endorse a Republican. But the four of the five border sheriffs, two are Democrat and two are Republican, have endorsed me. And that's because they know that I understand what's happening at the border. I represent Hidalgo County, and that is the Boot Hills, you know, it's, it's the county that includes the Boot Hills uh, along the New, New Mexico-Mexico border. It is a huge issue. And we have this unique situation where we don't have a port of entry for asylum seekers. We are a part of the El Paso Border Patrol um, area. Right. And so they enter through Texas or they enter through Arizona if they're seeking asylum or refugee status. What we have in New Mexico is the absolute criminal element, the gotaways that they talk about, and they are coming across freely. My friends who ranch along the border have game cameras and they show me on a regular basis full camo, backpacks on their back and their chest, or just simply cut the, the barbed wire where the fence stops, where the wall stops, and come across in trucks and vehicles. These are people wearing carpet shoes. These are the people who are doing the drug trafficking and human trafficking, the, the criminal element. And, they are, and the result of it is evident in New Mexico and across the nation. Fentanyl is among the highest causes of death. Human trafficking, sex trafficking, labor trafficking is, is out of control in America, out of control. Rebecca, I, I, I want to ask also about the economy because today we, we got the GDP report as we're recording this. This is we're recording this on Thursday and we got the GDP report for the first quarter of this year and the economy actually contracted by 1.4% annualized GDP. It's the first contraction since the big crater in the second quarter of 2020, of course, when everything was being shut down. Uh, we hear a lot from 
from Democrats, and I'm certain that you probably hear a lot from Michelle Lujan Grisham about how great the economy is right now. What are you hearing? How 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 important is the economy as a priority to the voters that you're you're hearing from? It is a priority. It's a priority. I mean, you're hitting on that. We've talked about education. School choice in New Mexico is bipartisan. We talk about border security. Border security in New Mexico is bipartisan. Economic recovery and seeing our small businesses reopen is is a bipartisan uh, concern in New Mexico. For the third month in a row, New Mexico has the highest unemployment rate. And Biden, uh, you know, his failed policies are creating inflation, leading to recession. And this governor is celebrating him, celebrating the job that he's doing as if it's good. And look at our cost of supplies. We're in an energy rich state. And we, our budget is dependent upon energy to function, for government to function for our schools to have operations. That's where our budget comes from. And right. we are, have a self-imposed energy crisis in an energy producing state, where if I were governor, I would be calling Biden and saying, hey, two years ago, we were energy independent. We can be energy independent again, put New Mexico to work, remove your federal moratoriums on our largest uh, economic developer in our state, and let's set New Mexico and America's energy potential free. Yeah, I was I actually was going to bring up energy next because that's a very important issue here in Texas as well, and I know it is in, as well in New Mexico. Um, as 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 a governor, what steps could you take to um, impact the um, energy development and um, the economic development in in um, New Mexico in a way that uh, you could operate either with the cooperation or without the cooperation of a hostile government in um, Washington, D.C.? Right. Well, well, first of all, I will be a Republican governor. And, and, and unless there is a huge red wave, we are traditionally Democrat in the House and the Senate. So right yep. now, uh, Republicans are outnumbered two to one. So it's probably not as easy to do a statutory change. So when I talk about what I can do as a governor, it comes from my understanding and working knowledge of the governmental process in New Mexico, which some of my colleagues do not, my opponents do not understand. And they'll make promises they certainly cannot keep. But as the governor from executive order, I can reverse some of the governor's ridiculous executive orders, which is, you, you know, 30 by 30, where 30% of the land will be owned by the government by the year 30, 2030. We are already a Western state with more than that. Our uh, state and federal land surpasses that. So this governor issued an executive order for 50 by 30. And so we've got to stop that. That's a war not only on the extraction industry, but also on farming and ranching. So looking at that and all, almost all the rules and reg regulations, except for our energy style, our California style energy transition act, are, have been done through rules and regulations and executive order. Faceless bureaucrats uh, taking the role of lawmakers and implementing these things through rules and regs. So I will reverse all of that. And not just for oil and gas, I wanna reduce regulation by 30% for all industry. And I, I, I plan to do that within the six months, as quickly as I can, going through the lawful public comment process and getting rid of 30% of the rules and regulations in the state. But as far as oil and gas goes, you know, just we just finished a 30 day session and we introduced and, and I supported the, the Republican House minority supported a bill that would reopen our power plant in Escalante power plant. It's one of the cleanest producing power plants in the U.S. post EPA Obama standards. Uh, we spent millions of dollars retrofitting and closed it anyway. We're closing a coal mine, the San Juan power uh, plant. And even looking at brown outages in the city of Albuquerque because we haven't replaced it with anything. Yep. And so we introduced a bill to keep that power plant open. And instead, what we got was a compromise to put, keep it open through the summer months, through the elections, so that there'd be no brown outages in Albuquerque because of this bad failed energy policy. But also adding natural gas to our energy portfolio standard 
you know, California did it, New Mexico probably ought to do it too, because we have not replaced the energy that we're outlawing and uh, making it so difficult to do business. And just having bureaucrats do their job and in a timely way permit permits and and respond to pe- as people who are trying to uh, produce energy in an affordable and reliable way for New Mexicans and Americans. Well, Rebecca, I know we got to get you back into that uh, hearing here. So I'm just going to ask you to give us one more time your, your website, how people can find you and how people can help you out. Yeah, so it's Rebecca for NM.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're raising money. We've gotten contributions from all 50 states. And thank you to all the folks that are watching this podcast. If you want to be part of saving New Mexico and setting our potential free, if you visited here, you know what a great state it is. Uh, but also saving our republic and keeping the American dream alive and well for our children and our grandchildren. You know, we're all in this fight together. So send checks. I'm happy to take them. Uh, give online. You can give. There's a donate button on that website. We've got some fun T-shirts that folks can wear. Uh, Most popular one just says green chili guns and freedom. So however you want to contribute is great. Um, And that's what we're doing. We're fighting for our agriculture producers, for our Bill of Rights, and for the American dream that folks have fought so hard for. Green chili, guns, and freedom. I like that. I might want to get myself one of those T-shirts as well. Rebecca Dow, thank you so much for being with us. Good luck to you on uh, on your campaign. Thank you. We'll be back with more from the Ed Morrissey Show right after this. Hey, if you like what you see on the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition and you like the guests that I have on, be sure to click on the subscribe buttons on whatever platform it is that you're watching on this. Subscribers help get the word out, and I appreciate your uh, your, your viewing. And Dwayne, generally Samuel Patterson, how do you see the subscribe buttons uh, on, on podcasts? One of the guests of the Ed Morrissey Show, and I am here to tell you, if you don't subscribe to the podcast, then clearly you are a member of Al-Qaeda, and you need to be dealt with them. <laughs> that's, part of the, that's part of the moderated, modulated debate that you'll get on the Ed Morrissey Show when you, <laughs> when you subscribe. Dwayne Jolisimo-Patterson, thank you for that um, endorsement. I appreciate it. Don't forget to subscribe.